Great. Well, good morning, everyone. Forgive me for preaching up here. I usually preach down there. If I did that, I would be a bit wet before the, before the right time comes. Uh, let me add my welcome to Chris Wins, especially those of you who are here for David's baptism. It's great to welcome you here. Uh, my name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so it's great to welcome you. If you're visiting us, uh, one of the things that we do in this church is we pick a book of the Bible and we work through it from beginning to end. And so you're joining us sort of towards the end of this series in Habakkuk that we've been looking at for the past month or so. And we're going to particularly focus on verses 1 to 16 from what Jeanette just read to us. We're going to save the end for next week. Um, So let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, please forgive us for our small thoughts of you. And we pray that as we hear your word this morning, please would you open our eyes to this transforming vision of who Jesus is to help us to see his majesty and glory. And we pray that you would help us as we live by faith, waiting for his coming for the final fulfillment of all of your promises. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In life, we trust people who have a proven track record. So when you want work done on your house, you ask a friend for a recommendation because you want someone who has a track record of doing honest work for an honest price. If an employer has a job opening much to the frustration of the younger people looking to get their foot in the door, they're always looking for someone who has experience doing a similar role previously. If a football team wants to sign a new striker, they look for someone who is a proven goal scorer. We trust people who have a proven track record. And for good reason, right? It gives us confidence that they can actually do what we hope they'll do that they can be relied upon to do what they have promised they can do. And as we begin Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk is looking for basically the same thing. Someone he can trust, someone he can rely on, someone with a proven track record. Not for scoring goals or sorting out your leaky tap, but someone with a proven track record of judging and saving. Judging and saving. Over the last month, we've walked with Habakkuk on his journey from why to worship. The the first part of the book is the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received, chapter 1, verse 1. And that runs all the way through chapter 1 and 2. And it's basically just a dialogue between Habakkuk and God, his question and answer between them. So it starts, Habakkuk asks God in chapter 1, verse 2, why? Why aren't you doing anything about the injustice and the violence? And God responds in chapter 1 verse 5, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come in judgment. To which Habakkuk responds by asking his second question in chapter 1 verse 12, What? What about their sin and wickedness? And then we went up high on the city ramparts with Habakkuk to wait for God's reply at the beginning of chapter 2. And then last week in chapter 2, verses 2 to 20, we heard God's answer. 
woe. Woe will come upon Babylon in the end. And not just on Babylon, but woe will come upon all of the proud, puffed up enemies of God. But the righteous who live by faith will be saved. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's the promise. That God's judgment is certainly coming, but that God's glory is certainly coming too. There will be both judgment and salvation. And so at the end of part one of Habakkuk, chapters one and two, Habakkuk has a promise. But a promise is all he's got. And as we begin part two in chapter three, the question is, is that a promise that Habakkuk and us can actually rely upon? Can we be confident that God really will judge his enemies and save his people? And the answer is yes. Because God is a God who has a proven track record. So there are two things to get hold of this morning. The first one is this that Habakkuk teaches us. Look back to God's past faithfulness. Look back to God's past faithfulness. Throughout part one, we see Habakkuk praying to God, bringing his questions and his confusion about his situation and about God's answer. And Habakkuk's final response in chapter three is another prayer. But this final prayer is different to the rest of Habakkuk's prayers. This is not a prayer of lament or complaint. It's not filled with questions or confusion. This is a song of wonder and worship. It's a prayer that's meant to be sung, just like lots of our modern hymns, our prayers, sung. And we know that because this is a prayer on Shigunoth. I, I know that you all know what that means already. No one does, don't worry, except we do know it's some kind of musical term. It's used in lots of the Psalms as well. And we know it's a prayer that's to be sung because of the very last thing that Habakkuk tells us as well. This is for the director of music to be played on stringed instruments. It's a prayer that's set to music and meant to be sung, but not just by Habakkuk, by all of God's people, including by us. It just goes to show when you're under pressure as Habakkuk has been, when you're facing hostility, struggling with what God is doing in your life, don't give up singing. Don't give up singing. What Habakkuk is, is doing in this song then is he's looking back on God's past faithfulness. He's singing about God's track record in history, about the times when God came as a warrior to fight for his people, when he demonstrated his power and strength to judge his enemies and save his people. And Habakkuk is poetically reflecting on those Old Testament stories, those stories of the past of God's judgment and salvation. And it makes him stand in awe. Verse 2. So as we get into verses 3 to 15, I want you to imagine, this is a bit like uh, for parents among you, it's a bit like going into your child's primary school classroom at the end of the summer term. You're uh, gathering their, their things up that they've left behind around the classroom, and as you look around on each of the walls is a gallery of images and crafts and random other stuff that's been put up there. Evidence of the work that your child's class has been doing over the last year. In some sense, sort of praising them for the work they've done over the last year. And in the same way, 
This song is a magnificent display, a glorious gallery of images from Israel's past, praising God for what he has done. It's not in a logical order, much like your child's classroom does not follow a chronological order around the walls. But all of the images are linked. They're all from the same series of events, looking back to the exodus, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the entry into the promised land, when God redeemed his people from slavery, when he rescued them from the most powerful nation on earth, when he gave them the inheritance he promised. Throughout the Old Testament, the exodus is the act of God's salvation, demonstrating his power and glory. And Habakkuk's poetically reflecting on those events to remind himself of who God is, a God with a track record, a track record of judging and saving. The first image is in verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. Ateman and Param are southeast of Israel in that sort of circled area there. It's not far from Mount Sinai where God first met Moses in the wilderness in the burning bush. It's a reminder of that time when God saw the misery of his people, heard their cries and came down to rescue them. And later they were places that Israel traveled through on their way to the promised land. And on one of those occasions when God met his people at Sinai, his glory covered the heavens. The sky was filled with fire and thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet as God descended in overwhelming power and majesty. But in that great display of awesome power, they were only seeing a tiny fraction of God's real power. And in the same way in verse 4, Habakkuk compares the coming of God to the rising of the sun to deliver his people from darkness to light. Just think of the power of the sun. You go out in the middle of the night, it's pitch black, and the sun comes up and chases away the darkness. That is what God's power is like, chasing away the dark. But even as rays flash from his hand, his power is hidden. See, Habakkuk knows that a long, dark night is coming when the Babylonians invade. But just as God came once from Teman and Paran, rising like the sun to deliver his people, so he will march out again to judge and to save, to chase away the darkness of the night, like the morning sun. And as he marches out, verse 5, he comes with something of a divine entourage. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. That's what happened the last time God came to judge and to save. When he came down to Egypt to judge them and to save his people, blood and boils, darkness and death, revealing God's power over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And when God comes, even the strongest opposition crumbles. The mountains and hills, those symbols of solidness and permanence, they shake and tremble and crumble before their maker. Just as Mount Sinai shook with a violent earthquake when God descended. 
It's no wonder that the nations that stand between Israel and the promised land were terrified by the reports that they heard about what God had done. Cush and Midian are in distress and anguish because of the power of God. See, the coming of Babylon was a terrifying prospect. But the coming of God is even more so. Just one look from the Holy One makes the nations tremble and the mountains crumble. In verse 9, God is pictured like a glorious divine warrior uncovering his bow, firing his arrows as the leader of Israel's armies as they enter the promised land to conquer the nations. In verse 10, Habakkuk goes back to the crossing of the Red Sea. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared, the waves lifted on high. At God's command, the sea stands to attention, allowing the Israelites to pass through on dry land, saved. And at his command, they return to their place, crashing down on the armies of Israel, uh, on the armies of Egypt, torrents of water sweeping away their chariots. Israel saved, Egypt judged. In verses 11 and 12, Habakkuk goes back again to the conquest of Canaan. Uh, There's a story in Joshua 10 about where the sun and moon stood still in the sky to enable Israel to complete their defeat of the Amorites. The sun and moon were worshipped by the pagan nations, but they stand still when the true God tells them. And that victory was followed by yet more battles and yet more victories as God fought for his people, threshing the nations in judgment against them. But God's purpose in all of this, in making known his power, is not like a bodybuilder. It's not all for show. This is not exhibition. But salvation, verse 13, you came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. God is a divine warrior who fights for his people. That's why he marches out rising like the sun. That's why he acts in judgment to defeat his enemies. That's why he crushes the leader of the land of wickedness so that he can rescue his people. So we step into Israel's classroom, we look around the gallery of images of God's past faithfulness. And the big thing that Habakkuk wants us to see, in contrast to the breathless idols of chapter 2, Habakkuk wants us to see the unstoppable, incomparable power of the God who judges and saves. And you can see Habakkuk's reaction in verse 16. As he hears about this awesome God, he says, my heart pounded. Literally, our Bibles are a bit too polite to say this, literally, my bowels rumbled. Don't think about that picture for too long. My bowels rumbled, my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Habakkuk stands in awe of God. This is the fear of the Lord. It's how we should feel as well. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Around their, their table, 
Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling Peter and Susan and Lucy about Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in the stories. And Lucy asks them, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Habakkuk's vision of this God is meant to inspire something of that same feeling in us. This is our God. A mighty warrior whose power and glory cannot be contained. He is good. But he is not safe. This is not a good that a God that you can domesticate, who will fit into a little box in a corner compartment of your life. Like Habakkuk, I think the issue for most of us is not that our problems are too big, but that our vision of God is too small. Our problem is not that our, our problems are too big, but our vision of God is too small because your, your hope is not based on the shape of your circumstances, but on the size of your God. And I think for most of us, myself included, your God is too small. Your God is too small. See, when it comes to knowing God, most of us are stunted. We're not captivated by his love and holiness. We're not astounded by his power and majesty. His words capture little of our attention. His ways fire little of our imaginations. His commands direct few of our priorities. And what's worse is that we're content with that. But God gives us this vision to open our eyes, to see him as he really is, to know him in his power and glory, to see this remarkable, transforming vision of a God who is glorious and great and powerful. We do not need smaller problems. We need a bigger vision of God. But as we look back with Habakkuk to see God's past faithfulness, there are a couple of more images that we can add to the classroom display. See, Habakkuk looked back at the Exodus. The Exodus is the great deliverance of the Old Testament gods uh, when he rescued his people from slavery. But we look back to an even greater Exodus, an even more ultimate deliverance of God's people. There's a really interesting moment in Luke's Gospel Luke records the conversation that took place between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. Luke tells us that they spoke about Jesus' departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. 
It's interesting, Moses is there talking with Jesus, and it's if Moses is saying to Jesus, listen, my exodus was pretty good. But Jesus, your exodus is the ultimate. Moses risked his life to liberate Israel from slavery. Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life to liberate us from sin and death. Moses commanded the people to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that God's judgment would pass over their houses. But Jesus is the lamb of God whose blood was shed on a wooden cross. That means God's judgment passes over us and we can be set free. Jesus is the God this passage describes, the one who commands the wind and the waves to rise up or be still, who walks on the waves. Jesus is the God for whom the sun and moon stood still for three hours at his death, shrouding the whole world in darkness. And through Jesus' exodus, through his death on the cross, Jesus won the decisive battle, not over Pharaoh and Egypt. Their repressive power only symbolizes the true enemy. Jesus defeated Satan himself, the leader of the land of wickedness. But at the cross, Satan thought that he had won having Jesus crucified, pierced with nails. But Jesus, with Satan's own spear, as it were, pierces Satan's head and crushes him under his feet. And through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, the anointed one, was delivered. Death defeated. Satan stripped of his power forever. And so it's supremely at the cross that in wrath, God remembers mercy. He'd done it in the Exodus, of course. Then the lamb bore the wrath of God so the firstborn Israelite son could find mercy. But it's at the cross where wrath and mercy meet because Jesus bears the wrath of God in our place for our sins. But it's at that very moment as Jesus bears the wrath of God that God is showing us his mercy, giving his own son as our substitute and savior so that we can be saved. Habakkuk looked back to God's faithfulness. He was remembering the gospel, consciously recalling what God had done, reminding himself of who God is, remembering what God has done. And we must do the same. Look back to God's past faithfulness. Look back to what he has done through Jesus. He has a proven track record of being able to judge and save. And that's how you know that God's future promises can be trusted to. Because we don't look back just to reminisce about the past, but to help us to look forward with confidence. Actually, that, that's partly what baptism is about, In a few moments, we're going to be baptizing David. And baptism directs our gaze backwards to what God has done in Jesus. Baptism is the sign and seal of what Jesus has done, washing away our sins through his death on the cross. But baptism also points our gaze forwards to what God will do. Because baptism is a sign and seal of the promise that just as he raises us up to new spiritual life in him, 
So when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age, he will raise physically all who trust in him to eternal life in the new creation. Which brings us to our second point. Look back at God's past faithfulness. And lastly and very briefly, look forward to God's future fulfillment. Look forward to God's future fulfillment. I said at the start, Habakkuk's prayer is something unusual because it's intended to be sung. But it's unusual in one other way. It's a prayer that you can see. It's 19 verses long. But it contains only one request. It's opposite way around to the way most of us pray, I guess. One request in verse 2. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This poetic reflection causes him to stand in awe of God, but it also helps Habakkuk to look to the future with confidence, to the day when God will come again to judge the living and the dead and to save his people, to help him to live by faith in the future fulfillment of God's promise. It's as if Habakkuk is saying to God, I've heard about that Exodus rescue. I stand in awe of what you did then. I know that you've got a track record of this kind of thing. And so just as you have promised you will do, do it again. Just as God acted powerfully in the past to judge his enemies and save his people in wrath, remembering mercy, Habakkuk says to God, please do it again for us in our day, in our time. He asks God to repeat that exodus-like redemption of his people, even as he brings wrath. And God's track record fills him with confidence that God can be relied upon to do it. So that's what he prays, that he will, just as he's promised. And in some senses, Habakkuk's prayer has been answered. In verse 16, Habakkuk is waiting for the day of calamity to come upon Babylon. And 70 years after they invaded Israel, the Babylonian Empire was ended. The people of Israel were sent home, freed from exile. In wrath, he remembered mercy. And in an even more significant way, Habakkuk's prayer has been answered with the first coming of Jesus Christ. The great deliverance of God's people. But in another sense, in its most ultimate sense, Habakkuk's prayer is still waiting for an answer. Because the final judgment has not yet come. The earth is not yet filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. And that's where we come in. That's why this is a song for us, because we're still praying for this to happen. And so we're invited to join in with Habakkuk, singing this song, praying for the final future fulfillment of God's promises. Praying, as the book of Revelation tells us, come, Lord Jesus. Because just as Jesus has come once, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he will come like a warrior. Revelation 19, 
I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes again in glory, he will come like a warrior. The mountains will crumble as the earth melts away. The sun and the moon will stand still as Jesus comes to judge his enemies and to save his people. And look, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, don't be found on the wrong side of that day. There is a day coming, God has a proven track record. He will judge and he will save. And the reason he has not come yet is so that you still have some time to ask him to save rather than to judge. That vision of Jesus in Revelation 19, it is awe-inspiring, heart-pounding, lip quivering, leg trembling. It's meant to be. When the Apostle John meets his best friend, the risen Jesus in glory, he falls down on the floor on his face as if he's dead. Let's not domesticate Jesus. He is good. But he is not safe. He is a glorious, powerful God. And one day he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead and to save his people. We know he will. Because we look back to his past actions, his past faithfulness. And so we can look forward with confidence to the future fulfillment of that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God with a proven track record of being able to judge and to save. Thank you that as you have promised, you will do it. Jesus will come again in glory. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. We are going to sing a couple of songs now and David and I are going to go and get ready.